On today's morning show, we tackle the tough and very important topic of homelessness. Uh, it is really everywhere. It is everywhere that we choose to look. Unfortunately, Americans have a tendency uh, to look the other way when it comes to the matter of homelessness. And we also tend to make simplistic generalizations about why some people are homeless, uh, to what extent it is of their own doing, and uh, who is homeless among us. And uh, it turns out that the closer we look at homelessness, in a sense, the more complex uh, the situation becomes. And it is not something that we should be thinking about or talking about uh, in, in shallow fashion. It is something that merits a thorough examination. And certainly that is uh, what is offered up in a really illuminating new book called In the Midst of Plenty, Homelessness and What to Do About It. Uh, and I am very pleased to be able to speak with one of the book's co-authors today, Dr. Mary Beth Shin, who is a Cornelius Vanderbilt professor at Vanderbilt University. She has done extensive work in this field and uh, on this topic and uh, brings a wealth of experience to bear on such questions as who becomes homeless? Why do people become homeless? How do we end homelessness? And how do we prevent it from occurring in the first place? Uh, four profound questions, all examined in this book published by Wiley. Dr. Mary Beth Shin, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thanks so much for having me. Before we begin talking about your book, uh, I think it would be interesting if uh, you could give our listeners a, a sense of your own academic background and also the work that you specifically do at Vanderbilt University. Mm -hmm. So I'm a community psychologist by training, uh, though the work that I do is really interdisciplinary. It involves sociologists, anthropologists, economists, and I teach in an interdisciplinary program um, at Vanderbilt called Human and Organizational Development the doctoral program is called Community Research and Action, and that may be a little bit more accurate description of the kinds of work that I try to do. In the book, you make mention of the fact that uh, you have, in a sense, been in the trenches of this problem of homelessness for quite a long time. Uh, explain how you first, in a sense, became, first became aware of it or directly encountered it. Mm -hmm. So back in the um, early 1980s, mid-1980s, when homelessness began to spill out of skid rows and into everyone's consciousness, um, I was a young mother teaching at New York University, um, and my kids would kind of pull on my sweater and say, Mommy, what, what's this person doing here? Uh, it's hard to recapture the kinds of shocked disbelief we had that homelessness uh, was occurring in, in the United States, in a wealthy country, uh, because in the 1970s, we really thought homelessness was at an end. Um, it was confined to skid rows. It was uh, older men. One of the books at the time was called Old Men, Drunk and Sober. Uh, and social scientists thought that when that generation passed, homelessness would pass too. But that's not what happened. Uh, we began to see younger people, minorities, women, and then families uh, spill onto the streets. And I was shocked like everyone else um, and wanted to do something about it. 
maybe it's because I happen to be Lutheran, but uh, mm-hmm. one, one thing that leapt out of, to me in your book is a reference uh, made uh, in the first chapter uh, to Martin Luther and to something that he wrote back in 1528 called uh, The Book of Vagabonds and Beggars. I knew nothing about this until I read your book. And uh, I think it would be interesting to just talk a moment about this because uh, this is within a wider context of the way we have tended to think about the homeless. Tell our listeners about this, uh, this writing by Martin Luther from the mid-16th century. I was pretty surprised to find it as well. Uh, but it's part of a long history of trying to label people who are poor uh, and to look at what's wrong with them uh, and to uh, kind of shunt them aside in, in some ways. Um, so perhaps surprising for, for Luther to have done. Uh, but it's part of a, a long history of uh, looking at what's wrong with people, trying to categorize them, uh, to make them into others, people other than ourselves that we can then perhaps not pay as much attention to. You tell us that in this book by Martin Luther, 28 varieties. And uh, as he was trying to, in a sense, understand the homeless, or or at least label them or car- uh, categorize them, uh, it speaks to something we have a tendency to do uh, you, you write at one point, we have a tendency to focus on deficits or challenges among the homeless. It is perhaps natural to ask, what is wrong with the people we encounter who are homeless in our streets? But you go on to say, there are more important questions to ask. Let's talk about that. First of all, uh, what is the value of that first question that we are so inclined to ask? Does it I I suspect you would not say that it has no value whatsoever or no importance whatsoever, but you do say there are more important questions to ask. Let's first talk about that first question. Is it worth asking? So it's important to understand who becomes homeless, um, and it's perhaps natural to try to understand why they differ from other people. Uh, But, uh, and, and we also often do that in kind of pejorative terms. Uh, So, you know, back to to Martin Luther, I just looked it up again. Uh, He talked about schleppers or false begging priests and suntkergers or pretend murderers um, and so forth. Um, These days, uh, we talk more about issues like mental illness or substance abuse or disability. And it's certainly true that people experience homelessness are more vulnerable along a lot of dimensions uh, than other people. So they're more likely to experience mental illness, they're more likely uh, to abuse substances, they're more likely to have other kinds of disabilities. Though half of folks, even single individuals who experience homelessness, don't have those problems. Um, And in families, uh, they're even rarer. But why should the penalty for mental illness be homelessness? Right. Uh, the reason people with mental illness become homeless is not basically their mental illness. It's because society is not providing housing and adequate disability benefits for people who uh, have trouble in the labor for- force because of disabilities. So uh, even though we need to understand 
the problems that people face, we also need to understand what we can do about it so that folks who experience mental illness aren't more likely to end up on our streets. And that's where we get to this intriguing question about how do we prevent homelessness? That is, how do we uh, keep people from becoming homeless in the first place versus ministering to their needs when they already find themselves homeless? As I said, one of several important questions approached in your book. Uh, for those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Mary Beth Shin, a professor at Vanderbilt University and co-author of In the Midst of Plenty, Homelessness and What to Do About It. Um, one of the uh, intriguing questions here is about how uh, the assumption sometimes is made that there's always been widespread homelessness, that this is just a part of life, a part of the world, a part of the human condition, and something that is unfortunate, but nevertheless maybe with us to stay and largely unavoidable. Uh, but you say that we have not always had widespread homelessness. Explain what changed uh, in the 1980s that seems to have worsened the homelessness problem uh, to such a significant degree. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard for people today to kind of recapture the shock disbelief that we felt when homelessness began to uh, really arise. And for young people today who spent their entire lives picking their way around their fellow citizens on the street, it's hard to believe that there was a time when we had very little homelessness. But in the 1970s, we really did have very little homelessness. Um, and at that time, it was possible for people at the bottom of the income distribution to rent housing that they could afford. There was actually a surplus of units, housing units available that were affordable to people at the bottom of the income distribution. And over the 1980s, that surplus turned into a deficit. We lost a lot of cheap housing units, single room occupancy hotels, board and care homes. Uh, arguably the housing became of better quality, but it also became more expensive. And housing prices rose much faster than incomes rose. So in some sense, the homelessness crisis is the worst manifestation of inequality in our country. Uh, people at the bottom simply can't afford housing. There's no state in the United States where a full-time minimum wage worker at either the federal minimum wage or the local minimum wage, if that should be higher, can afford what's called the fair market rent, a low average rent for a two-bedroom apartment. And there are precious few counties where a full, that full-time year-round minimum wage worker can even afford a one-bedroom apartment. Uh, people on disabilities that uh, have disability benefits that don't permit them to rent a one-bedroom apartment. And uh, that's really the root cause of homelessness, housing that people cannot afford. Hmm. Where did affordable housing go? I mean, how did it, in a sense, vanish from the scene or recede from the scene from where it was before? Well, in the last two decades, we've uh, increased 
the uh, supply of affordable housing that's subsidized by the federal government uh, from only uh, by, by only about 10 percent um, over you know a two decade period when our population has grown much more than that. So one thing that's happened is that the federal government has stepped back from subsidizing housing for poor people. We still subsidize housing for rich people. We do it in a very different way. Uh, wealthier people are allowed to deduct from their income taxes the interest that they pay on mortgage and the real estate taxes that they pay. So that's essentially a subsidy for housing for wealthy people. We don't subsidize housing for poor people to the same extent. Most poor renters get nothing. Uh, so that's one thing that happened. The other thing that happened is more in the private market, and that's a very important part of the story, uh, when uh, the other uses of land became more profitable than poor housing. So single-room occupancy hotels got torn down. They were often replaced by luxury condominiums. Uh, people with lots of money can bid up the price of land, can bid up the uh, uh, alternative uses besides low-income housing. So we put in a golf course, but we don't put in low-income housing. Mm. Zoning has been a piece of the problem as well, so that communities have tried to protect the value of land for the people who own homes by saying, you can't put in a duplex, you can't put in multifamily housing. Every house has to be on a certain acreage of land. And all of that also increases the price of building or the cost of building housing. Um, so housing costs continue to rise. Uh, many people are stretched, uh, not just poor people, but middle income people um, are paying often half of their income uh, for rent. Uh, certainly a large number of people pay more than 30% of their income for rent, which is the Department of Housing and Urban Development standard for uh, what's too much to pay. Um, and poor people uh, have a lot of trouble uh, finding a place that they can afford. Hmm. One of the terms that uh, I was, I realized I was being very careless about is cert is the, the the actual term of homeless and homelessness and and what it means to be homeless. And you make a distinction in your book that I think is 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 important and uh, worth exploring: a distinction between literal homelessness, and something else called precarious housing. Uh, your, and we should say that your book uh, focuses pretty much on literal homelessness, but it's important for us to have, I think, some awareness of this other phenomenon of precarious housing. Would you mind taking a moment just to distinguish between those two terms? Um, sure, and, and thanks for asking that. Uh, so the Department of Housing and Urban Development counts as homeless uh, people who are on our streets or in other places not intended for people to live, or people who are in programs, shelters, transitional housing programs designated for homeless people. Um, they include a few more people in their definition, but don't actually count them. The Department of Education takes a much broader view of homelessness. It includes people who are doubled up with other households because they can't afford or find a place of their own. Um, and it includes a few other categories of people as well, but that, that's the main distinction. Um, 
And those groups aren't so very different. So among people who become literally homeless, uh, a little over half have most recently been doubled up with some other household. Uh, It's when that uh, arrangement breaks down that they become literally homeless. And uh, after an episode of homelessness, many people go back to those kinds of doubled up situations. But most of the research has been on the literally homeless folks. Uh, So we know more about how to end homelessness there. And we also know that the strategies that end homelessness uh, also uh, end that kind of or reduce that kind of doubling up or uh, near homelessness, hidden homelessness, some people call it. Another interesting distinction comes up when you quote a, a sociologist who probably was among the first to really seriously study uh, homelessness as it was manifesting itself towards the end of the 20th century. Peter Rossi, I believe, was his name. Mm-hmm. And and you, you, you mentioned the fact that he liked to talk about modern homelessness. And are we simply talking about homelessness that's happening when all of these changes occurred that you were just talking about that made affordable housing more scarce? Are there other ways in which we should be thinking about modern homelessness versus homelessness of another generation? Well, homelessness has always risen and fallen with economic circumstances. So the last time we had families uh, experiencing much homelessness was in the Hoovervilles of the Great Depression. Uh, And we had encampments that included uh, single individuals, but also included families back then. Uh, And as the Great Recession, uh, Great Depression, sorry, uh, receded, uh, then that kind of homelessness receded as well. But there have always been people who've, who've been poor. Uh, in colonial times, uh, there was a distinction between people who came from a community and were seen as the responsibility of that community and people who came from somewhere else who were shunted away. Uh, so there have always been poor people. There probably will always be poor people. Uh, but what's not necessary is for people to be literally homeless because we now know what to do about it, and we have the wealth uh, to take care of the problem if we choose to do so. Hmm. I found really fascinating, actually, I think it was in the portion of the book where you were kind of making the distinction between literal homelessness and precarious housing and, and talking about how we should not be careless and simplistic in the generalizations that we make about the homeless. You drew, in sharp contrast, the way Europeans tend to talk about uh, homelessness, and in particular, uh, as they, in a sense, set policy and and work to address the situation, are much more careful and, uh, in a sense, uh, much more specific. Uh, You make reference to 13 categories and 24 subcategories with which they uh, highlight different kinds or, or phenomena of homelessness. Uh, can you explain uh, something about where that's coming from and, and to what extent that can be a, 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 a positive factor in, in addressing homelessness? Or, or is that 
uh, maybe not, maybe, or is that in some respects a misguided attempt to take this issue seriously? Well, where it comes from is the fact that there are a lot of European countries that came to uh, this issue with different definitions and different ways of thinking about it. And they all got together in a union called FEANSA. I don't even know what the acronym stands for or in what language it was originally um, put put out. Um, and uh, they realized that they were all talking about different things. And so uh, their effort to put together this typology of homelessness was an effort to be able to talk across national boundaries about uh, just what phenomenon they had in mind. And so the precision is, is useful uh, in the sense that, you know, as opposed to talking about the homeless, we're talking about people with specific uh, kinds of conditions. Um, it's probably overkill uh, to have so many different categories. Um, and, uh, but, but it helps with cross-national communication. Hmm. We're speaking with Dr. Mary Beth Shin, a Cornelius Vanderbilt professor at Vanderbilt University and the co-author of a very important book called In the Midst of Plenty, Homelessness and What to Do About It. I realize now that I intended early in the interview to ask you about that title, and I think you yourself acknowledged that <laughs> some people might be taken aback by that title, but it was chosen very deliberately. Explain the thinking mm -hmm. behind that title in the midst mm -hmm. of plenty. So right now, in the midst of a COVID epidemic, people probably don't feel like they're living in the midst of plenty. And indeed, there's a lot of economic suffering. Um, and I should say that the book was written uh, just before COVID. Uh, but what I want to say is that we have the resources in the United States, if we choose to use them, to end homelessness. We don't have to have that uh, in, in our country. Um, other countries that are less wealthy than we are, Finland uh, is a prime example, have essentially ended the kinds of homelessness that the Department of Housing and Urban Development count, the kinds of literal homelessness of people on the streets. Um, and they're attacking the hidden homeless. They're attacking the kinds of doubling up homelessness um, that we haven't even begun to think about. So uh, they're less wealthy than we are, but they chose to make a difference. We've halved veteran homelessness in the last decade by devoting resources to it. Uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the Veterans Administration have uh, shared resources to put people in various kinds of housing programs, and we can talk about the different programs that work for, for different groups. Um, and the mayor's challenge put veterans at, at the front of the line. Um, and uh, lots of people believe that folks who've defended our country shouldn't then be on our streets. Uh, so there's been political will to reduce veterans' homelessness, and it works. So we've shown that with concerted efforts, uh, with political will, we can do it. It's within our means. And so the kinds of abject poverty that lead to homelessness in the United States are unnecessary. We can do better. And that's the point of the, the title, In the Midst of Plenty. Very good. One of the things that uh, I really came to appreciate in a new way 
after reading your book is what a complicated challenge it is, not not just to try to address homelessness, but in a sense to assess its prevalence, to calculate just how many people in our country are homeless, uh, or I mean the, the scope of this problem. And uh, I, I think a lot of us don't stop to realize that this is this is one of the challenges involved in all of this uh, f- for a lot of different reasons. Explain to our listeners why it is so difficult uh, to calculate the scope of homeless, the, 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 the sheer number of people who are, are homeless. I mean, that by its very nature, uh, it is a problem that is not, in a sense, easily quantified. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if you think about it for a moment, if you try to uh, to guess how you might go about counting people who experience homelessness, you'd realize how, what a difficult problem it is. Uh, but it's a difficult problem for two reasons. One is finding the people who are homeless tonight, and we know that homeless counts miss people. Um, but the second reason is that uh, most homelessness is temporary. So a lot more people experience homelessness over the course of a month, a year, a lifetime than are homeless on any given night. So the Department of Housing and Urban Development sends counters out, or local communities send counters out, uh, to in, on a night in January to try to find all the people who are on the streets. We know they miss people. Uh, but based on those counts, uh, we believe that there are over half a million people who are homeless on any given night. That includes people who are out of doors and people who are in shelters. Over the course of a year, we document about 1.4 million people who are just in shelters, never mind the people who are out of doors. And over the course of longer periods, it's a far greater number. So perhaps surprisingly, the ways that you get the highest numbers are to do telephone surveys of people who are living in conventional dwellings. Bruce Link did that back in 1990, Um, and he called up people who were living in regular housing. No barracks, no jails, no homeless shelters, nobody on the street, just people in housing. And um, he was doing a survey to try to understand attitudes towards homelessness, but he thought, well, maybe... People who have some experience will have different kinds of attitudes. So he asked, have you ever experienced homelessness? Has there ever been a time in your life when you've been homeless? 14% of people said yes. And then he asked some follow-up questions to say, well, was it the kind of homelessness that we think of as literal homelessness? Was it on the streets? Was it in a you know, transportation hub? Was it in a homeless shelter? And 7% of people Adults living in regular housing said yes to that. The other 7% were people who were doubled up uh, but considered themselves homeless while they were living with with other folks. So the scope of the problem is really much bigger than, than we often think. Homelessness is not a separate species of individual. Um, it's not that, you know, once you're homeless, always homeless. Indeed, most people who are homeless are homeless fairly briefly. Uh, it's much more like, uh, say, unemployment than it is like immigration. So when you think about immigration, you say, well, the number of immigrants in our country is on a, on a given night is 
pretty much the same as the number over the course of a year. A few more people will come, a few people may die, uh, but the numbers don't vary that much over a day or a year. But unemployment is something that happens to people. Uh, people lose their jobs, uh, and most of them find employment again. Some of them will have a second bout. Some of them will become mired in unemployment. They'll drop out of the labor force. And that's true of homelessness, too. Most episodes are fairly brief. Some people have repeat episodes, and some people get mired in homelessness um, and are, are long-term homeless. But that's a relatively small portion of the total. Hmm. One of the uh, things that is clear is that this is something that affects both individuals and families. And I was actually rather shocked to see that uh, on, on any given night, nearly half of those uh, who find themselves homeless, and particularly for those who, who are able to be in shelters, that nearly half of those homeless are families, that is, parents with children. Has that always been the case uh, in, in, in recent years? Has it always been that high a, high a percentage? That's a, the case for modern homelessness, the kinds of homelessness that rose in the, the 1980s, uh, and it accelerated in the 80s. It's been fairly constant uh, since then. Uh, the proportion of homeless uh, in, in families is going down just slightly uh, at, at this point, but it's it's reasonably constant. Um, what's what's really shocking is that the age at which you are most likely to be in a homeless shelter in the United States is infancy. Yes. That is, children under the age of one are the age group most likely to become homeless. Now, there are more adults who, who are homeless, uh, certainly, and this is sheltered homelessness, people in, in homeless shelters. Thankfully, not too many infants are on the street. Uh, but... Uh, so, so there are many more adults in shelter, but the single age group at highest risk is babies. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, it is more men than women. And in fact, you tell us when we're talking about uh, situations where children are not involved, although even when we're talking about children uh, as part of the mix, uh, that that it is still men than women, but then that disparity even grows further when we're talking about the homeless who are individuals. Seventy one percent men versus twenty nine percent women. Uh, is there any explanation for that disparity? Well, some of those men are the fathers of kids in families that that are homeless, uh, and they are often separated from their children. Uh, part of that is what happens in American society where when partners split up, the kids are most likely to stay with their mothers. Part of that is the rules of homeless shelters, uh, so that many homeless shelters are not able to accommodate full families, and they split up families. Uh, in uh, We did a large uh, study to show what kinds of interventions work to end homelessness for families, and we recruited families in homeless shelters, and we found uh, that uh, about a quarter of the families that were in shelters had a man with them, or a two-parent family, um, and another 10% had 
had a partner living elsewhere, typically because of shelter rules. So shelters don't accommodate uh, partners. They don't always accommodate older boys. Uh, they don't accommodate three-generational families. Um, they don't look like what our family structures look like um, in, in the United States. Uh, but uh, it, it is true that uh, sing, among single adults, you're more likely to find men th than women. Um, and I think it may be easier for women uh, and women with children to double up with friends and relatives than to go literally to the streets. Mm. You also tell us that, and, and this of course flies in the face of some of the careless and callous assumptions that we sometimes make about the homeless, that that uh, half of the adults who experience sheltered homelessness do not have any significant mental illness or, or other disability. And uh, this really shakes us loose from uh, the stereotype that a lot of us still tend to form about uh, who are the homeless and why are they homeless? Mm -hmm. No, I think homelessness is primarily an issue of affordable housing. It's primarily an economic problem. Um, and so simply giving people housing that is affordable ends homelessness for many. Uh, so uh, I started to tell you about this large experiment we did uh, called the Family Options Study, uh, where we randomized, randomly assigned over 2,000 families that we recruited from homeless shelters in 12 sites around the country to four different housing and service interventions. And what we found, we found really clear results, uh, that families who got access to what's called a housing choice voucher, that's a voucher that holds your rental expenses to 30% of your income, families who had access to that kind of a subsidy stopped being homeless. They stopped being doubled up. They stopped moving around as much. And all kinds of radiating benefits also uh, occurred for those families. So uh, the adults in those families reported less psychological distress and less substance abuse and less domestic violence. So things that sometimes cause homelessness uh, were also reduced when families got stable housing. Families were less likely to get separated from their children. Kids were less likely to go into foster care. Children had better school attendance and fewer behavior problems. Families had less food insecurity. So there are all these radiating benefits for just making housing affordable without any additional services. Families were able to solve other problems on their own when they had a stable base. Mm. So in other words, when we are talking about homelessness, I mean, in and of itself, uh, a serious enough problem, uh, it also is a problem that complicates all kinds of other problems that they might be experiencing and, and related uh, to the poverty in which they are uh, uh, most likely living. And that when, when we can help them solve this, in a sense, foundational problem, it puts them in a much better position to deal with the, the other issues and challenges that, that are part of their lives. Is, is that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. And absolutely, uh, that secure housing is a base from which people can do everything else. And without secure housing, it's very hard to solve any other problem. Uh, it's hard to solve health problems 
uh, when you can't uh, get access to sanitation or store your medicines. Uh, it's hard to solve substance abuse problems if, if you have them. It, those are hard to deal with even if you're housed. Um, and even if you have, uh, you're putting great, great effort into it. Uh, but uh, it's even harder when you don't know where you're going to sleep tonight. One of the chapters of your book, uh, Chapter 4, talks about uh, what you term at one point the, the, the homeless, homelessness in interventions that are already in place and, and that in many cases form kind of complex systems. Um, you do, however, talk about how sometimes these programs, uh, I'm sure for the most part well-meaning, are, are not always effective. Um, beyond, of course, the, the most profound hope that you have about ending homelessness altogether, uh, when it comes to that system to help the homeless that is in place in to varying degrees in different places, uh, what do you wish was different about that system to make it more effective? Mm-hmm. Well, um, se- several things. Uh, one is that we really need to follow the research on interventions that are effective. So I've just described the research that shows that housing vouchers end homelessness for families. Transitional housing doesn't work as well. Transitional housing is a services first intervention. Uh, It puts families into programs where they're supervised and they get lots of psychosocial services uh, to try to help them deal with whatever problems they have. Uh, And the idea is at the end of two years of this kind of transitional program, families will be able to flourish on their own. And what we find is that Uh, That's not the case. Families are no better off after going through transitional programs than families who just go to shelters uh, in terms of their housing and also in terms of their psychosocial issues. So the transitional housing doesn't reduce distress. It doesn't reduce substance use in the ways that simply giving people affordable housing does. For single individuals who have serious mental illnesses, um, folks need a little bit more than just housing. But the kinds of programs that have been shown to work are supported housing programs that uh, get people indoors first, housing first, and only then allow people to uh, work on other kinds of problems with wraparound services. The program that's most successful there, I think, uh, is the Pathways Housing First program that takes people in directly from the street to apartments with private landlords, um, gives them subsidized housing um, using disability benefits uh, to pay part of the rent, uh, and gives them wraparound services, but services that they control, that they choose. So they choose their housing, they choose their services. Services work a lot better when they're freely chosen. Um, And when you don't bounce people back to the street, uh, simply because they make a mistake at some point. Um, so that's a, a program that's been shown to work. There's um, been a multi-site study in Canada called At Home Chez Soi uh, that really proved that that program was much better than a services first kind of program that tries to get people clean and sober before they're allowed to come indoors. 
works better for housing, doesn't hurt on on substance abuse, doesn't enable substance abuse. Uh, And uh, so we need to do more of that. And we're still kind of dragging our feet and we're still trying to get people to, you know, accept our services while they're still out on the street without offering them housing um, in which they can actually deal with their problems. Mm. So uh, the first thing I really would like the homeless service system to do is to follow the evidence. Um, We have a lot of evidence. We we should really follow it. Mm. Um, The other thing the system needs is just more resources. Uh, we are, you know, working hard on trying to get lists of everybody who's experiencing homelessness at any particular time, uh, trying to give priorities to the people who are worst off. Uh, but uh, even when we have these lists and we have what's called coordinated entry, so we try to marshal all the resources that we have in the community and allocate them in rational ways, if we don't have resources, there's not much to allocate. And if we don't have resources, there's not much reason for people to get their names on our list or to cooperate with our outreach workers for what? Um, hmm. In Nashville, we've been using CARES funds, the federal stimulus funds, to actually get people into housing. And one really interesting finding, um, and it's mirrored around the country, uh, is that people who were in encampments and who said, well, no, I'm not really interested in housing. I don't really want to work with you. As soon as somebody from that encampment actually gets housing, they're online too. The reason they said, well, I just as soon stay outside is that they didn't believe that anything they would do in working with an outreach worker would get them to housing. When they see that housing is a real possibility, they're lining up. Mm, Wow. You mentioned at least once, maybe twice uh, through the course of this interview, that one, in a sense, cause for hope is when we look at what has been done with homeless veterans. And I hope people understood the first statement that you made about that in the interview when you said that veteran homelessness has essentially been halved, that is, cut in half. Uh, Can you explain how such a thing was possible and uh, how directly applicable that success story uh, can be to the overall uh, homelessness issue and problem uh, in our country? Mm-hmm. I think it's a great model. So what happened is the secretary of the Veterans Administration, Shinsheki, uh, under the uh, last presidential, uh, uh, under the Obama administration, decided that homelessness among veterans would be a priority. And making it a priority, he worked with HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, to set up a program called HUD-VASH, Department of Housing and Urban Development, Veterans Administration Supportive Housing, uh, to provide this kind of supportive housing following a Housing First model to veterans who had disabilities. Um, And that worked famously. They also, in the Veterans Administration, uh, now ask two screening questions of every vet who comes in for health services once a year. So you come in to, you know, for your diabetes, you get asked once a year two questions, one about whether you've recently had housing instability and a second about whether you expect housing instability in the near future. 
And if you do, they send you over to prevention services. Uh, they've used some other programs called rapid rehousing, where you give people short-term rental subsidies. Um, those don't work so well for families. Families aren't able to develop enough income in a short period of time to uh, bridge to fully uh, funding their, their own housing. Uh, it's more likely to work for single individuals, and it can be used as a bridge to longer-term housing subsidies. So uh, there's been this full-court press. There's been this sense of we want to prevent it, we want to end it, we want to bring the resources to it. The only new resources for uh, housing vouchers that have been provided recently are for, for veterans. That's not quite true, but it's almost true. Um, so by making it a priority, we succeed. And we haven't made it a priority for other people, but we could. As you say in your book, I think so eloquently, homelessness is a choice, not a choice by people sleeping on the street, but a choice by the rest of us to look the other way. There is so much to think about in your marvelous book, again titled, In the Midst of Plenty, Homelessness and What to Do About It, published by Wiley, co-authored by my morning show guest, Dr. Mary Beth Shin. Professor Shin, thank you so much, first of all, for all of the important work that you have done on this uh, profoundly important question and issue. And thank you for being part of the morning show to talk about your marvelous book. Best wishes. Well, thank you so much for having me.